0: History of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 63, The Little Pharaoh That Couldn't. Before we get into the episode proper today, I want to do a little bit of self-promotion slash cross-promotion, and say that I was recently on a podcast called Swords, Sorcery, and Socialism, where I discussed the Witcher novels. There will be links to those episodes down below. It's about four hours spread out over the course of three installments discussing about the politics kind of buried within The Witcher and how it's not a story about a monster hunter. It's just really not. It was a really fun discussion. I had a great time. And if that's the sort of thing you'd be interested in, go check it out. But uh, warning, rated R for... Damn near everything you could give something a rated R for. In related news to self-promotion, I want to call on the audience to leave reviews on Spotify, especially if you're already listening to the show on Spotify. They just set up their new review platform on their app, and it would be a great opportunity to just kind of boost the history of Persia and maybe get us trending on another app. It's always fun when that happens, and... So why not take advantage of that and tell people on Spotify how much you love this podcast? Just saying. Anyway, it's been a minute, so on to the recap. Last time, the Persian political order was sent spitting into disarray when the treacherous Bivarabam Artabanus organized a conspiracy to assassinate Xerxes along with his chosen heir and eldest son, Darius. For the next seven months, Artabanus was the power behind the throne, while Artaxerxes, a younger son of the late king, acted as the legitimate ruler. When Artabanus’s conspiracy began to fracture, Artaxerxes was alerted to the truth of his father’s death and killed the remaining conspirators. After facing off with his own brother for the right to the throne, Artaxerxes was able to right the ship of state and enter into about five years of relative peace. In those five years, the young king became friends with the aging Athenian general-in-exile Themistocles, who had been chased out of Greece by his political enemies. After a few years of traveling with the royal court, Themistocles reunited with his family and ruled the territory of Magnesia on the Meander, as a Persian governor in Anatolia. The one stipulation for this honor was that Themistocles would have to aid the Persians in any future conflict with the Greeks. But Themistocles was old, and Athens and Persia seemed mostly at peace. And just a heads up, I'll come back to this at the very end of the episode and have to deal with some self-harm and suicide. If that's not for you, Go ahead and duck out when I get back to Themistocles, you won't miss anything other than my end of episode spiel. But then, Egypt came around to realizing that there was a new king on the Persian throne. A young king, whose rise to power was tarnished with controversy and internecine bloodshed. Somewhere in the northwestern fringes of the Egyptian satrapy, a new rebel pharaoh sensed opportunity. Meet Inaros II, who was really just carrying on a family tradition at this point. His father, Samtik IV, was the rebel pharaoh at the end of Darius' reign and the beginning of Xerxes back in episode 46, the Persian Emperor. If you can cast your memory all the way back to that episode, you might remember that this Samtik, was probably the son of Samtik III, who was defeated by Cambyses in 525, and then tried to revolt against the Persian occupation of Egypt in 523. So not only is Inaros the scion of the last Egyptian dynasty before the Persian conquest, but his family has been resisting that conquest for a while now. There was also a rebel called Petubistet when Darius the Great came to power, but we don't know where he fits in here. After Xerxes' victory in Egypt, Samtik IV vanishes from the record, presumably to some gruesome execution, and there is clear evidence that Xerxes took steps to disenfranchise some of the old Egyptian nobility. He installed his brother, Achaemenes, as satrap, and the province was not only peaceful for 20 years, but even participated heavily in the invasion of Greece, with Achaemenes himself leaving Egypt to command the navy in the field. Clearly, the Persians felt secure in Egypt during Xerxes' reign. Despite this seeming stability, there was looming hostility on the western fringes of the province. Thucydides tells us, that Inaros was, quote, the Libyan king of the Libyans on the Egyptian border, having his capital at Marea. Now, Marea isn't a city you hear a lot about in history. Up to this point, it was just a backwater at the western edge of the Nile Delta, built on the shore of a massive salt lake and separated from the Mediterranean coast by just a few miles. Its only direct connection to the Nile was by a series of man-made canals. In the Hellenistic era, this area was quickly absorbed into Alexandria, and the only real legacy of Morea today is in the name of the lake, which is still called Lake Meriut. In the 5th century BC, this part of the delta was marshy and difficult to traverse on foot, an ideal base for insurgents and holdouts against central authority. The other standout here is Thucydides' emphasis that Inaros and his initial followers were Libyans. In some senses, Libya in ancient Greek more or less referred to Libya in the modern sense, i.e. the place due west of Egypt. As a location, Libya was also the Greek word for the whole African continent, but as an ethnonym, Libyan means something pretty specific. Libyan was the Greek name for the indigenous Amazigh people of North Africa, sometimes better known as Berbers in recent history. This is important for two reasons. First of all, it's another clear tie back to the 26th dynasty pharaohs conquered by Cambyses. They were also noted as a Libyan dynasty. Second, it tells us a bit about Inaros II's political situation when Artaxerxes became the new king of kings. Inaros was headquartered at the northwestern edge of Egyptian civilization, identified as the king of the Libyans and the descendant of at least two rebels against the Achaemenid regime. There is also an interesting document dated to Inaros's reign far to the south of Morea in the Karga Oasis, located about 125 miles or 200 kilometers west of the Nile, almost in the direct center of modern Egypt. The document is written in Egyptian and dated to the second year of Inaros, Prince of the Rebels. In this document, Inaros's name is not marked with the traditional cartouche symbol used to indicate Egyptian royalty, and the usual royal titles are absent. He is not the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, he is just the prince of rebels. Typically, this document is dated to whenever Inaros started his revolt in the early reign of Artaxerxes, and that certainly makes sense, but if he was a serious claimant to the Egyptian throne, Prince of Rebels seems like a weird title to give him. But this isn't the first rebel document to appear in Egypt's western oases. Darius the Great's opponent, Petubastet, had a strong base of support in the west as well, as did at least one of the rebellious Samtics. Strictly speaking, there's no reason that the second year of Inaros, Prince of the Rebels, has to be referring to the second year of Inaros' campaign for the throne, just his second year as the leader of an anti-Achaemenid group. Regardless of how you interpret that date, the fact that this document came from so far south is striking for another reason. Two years into Inaros' revolt, he had not been very successful taking territory in the Nile Delta, let alone the trade routes between Karga and the rest of Egypt. Instead, it seems like he had a pre-existing base of support in the south from the start, specifically in the west, where Libyans rather than Persians might have had more control. The only conclusion I can think of is that the western fringe of Egypt was never fully subdued by Xerxes. The Persians retook the Nile Valley and forced the western edges of Egypt to quiet down and be peaceful. They even contributed troops to the invasion of Greece in 480. But they were more independent than Xerxes' lists on the Diva inscription might have admitted. On the other hand, whatever pro-Inaros' sympathy may have existed in the south, they did not rise up in his favor. There is no evidence for any warfare in Upper Egypt during Inaros' rebellion. Unlike his father's uprising, even the extremely well-documented garrison on the Nile island of Elephantine has no evidence for Inaros' rebels in the south. As the descendant of the last pharaoh, Inaros II was the Prince of Rebels, but he was not entirely alone in his royal claims. Another figure, called Amirtaeus by the Greeks and Emenirdisu by his friends, was identified as King of the Marshes by Thucydides, and he too was active around this time at the outset of Artaxerxes' reign. Amyrteus does not get a lot of press in the sources for this rebellion, but Herodotus offhandedly mentions that he too gave the Persians a lot of trouble around the same time as Inaris. Because the other sources don't say much, we don't really know what Amyrteus was doing in the 460s other than vaguely giving the Persians trouble. He was king of the marshes, which means that he too was operating in the western fringes of the Nile Delta, somewhere south of Mireya. He is also identified as a native Egyptian, meaning that he was not directly related to the 26th dynasty's Libyan pharaohs like Inaros. Herodotus mentions Inaros and Amartya together as if their reputations were tied in the Greek popular consciousness. And Theseus says that Inaros led his rebellion alongside an unnamed Egyptian. So maybe they were partners of convenience. Or maybe Amerteus' title, king of the marshes, was officially subordinate to Inaros' claim to be pharaoh. Or maybe Amirtaeus was a rival competing with Inaros to seize the throne in a post-Persian world order at the same time, which could potentially explain some of Inaros' early troubles getting his war off the ground. Speaking of that war, Inaros started his campaign to take over Egypt shortly after Artaxerxes came to the throne. Possibly just after the death of Artabanus in 464, but it was a very slow-going revolt. Enaro started with a small base of local support in the western Nile Delta and was able to expel the Persian tax collectors and their small garrisons from his home region. This had the dual purpose of declaring independence from the Achaemenid government and seizing those tax collectors' treasuries, which he used to start recruiting mercenaries. Inaros expanded southeast through the Nile Delta until he and his army retook the city of Sais, his family's ancestral capital on the westmost fork of the Nile River. But the Persians halted their advance there with just the western and least productive parts of the Nile Delta under Inaros' control. This is what allowed Artaxerxes to enjoy his first four years of independent rule. Inaros simply wasn't a threat. Achaemenes had the situation under control. The rebellion had taken some of his smaller garrisons by surprise and seized control of an area that was difficult to militarily operate in. But they couldn't sustain those victories without controlling more of Egypt, and they did not have the strength to expand any further. Crucially, no matter how many individual mercenaries he hired or how much support from the Egyptian people he garnered, Inaros did not have a navy. We don't necessarily think of rivers as a theater for naval confrontations, but the Nile is huge, and its cities, especially the satraps' capital at Memphis, were fortified to be functionally impervious without a joint land and naval siege. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases helped open new doors and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Fortunately for Inaros, after years of slow-moving expansion and a lifetime of royal ambition, he happened to know someone who not only had a navy, but also a manifesto stating that they would work tirelessly to frustrate the efforts of the Persian king. So in 460 BCE, Inaros made contact with the Athenians. Even though the territorial expansion of the Delian League had mostly stopped after the Battle of the Eurymedon, Athens' de facto empire only existed on the premise that they were always at war with Persia, and given their unparalleled naval dominance, the Athenians embraced an old tradition of Aegean naval powers, state-sanctioned piracy. Athens kept detailed lists of their casualties from foreign campaigns, and these lists show that Athenian sailors were still fighting and dying in the Persian pockets of the Anatolian coast, in Phoenicia, in Egypt, and in Cyprus. Basically, all of the Persian territory left in the Aegean Sea. These were, apparently, not attempts to conquer territory, but just raids to harry any Persian naval ambitions and exert Athenian control over the waves. Cyprus may have been the exception. Inaros' offer reached the Athenians while the full force of the Delian League navy was engaged in a campaign against Cyprus, and Inaros clearly knew that it would take a lot to get the Athenians on his side. If he knew anything at all about Greek politics he must have known that the Athenians were keeping one eye on Sparta at all times. If he knew a little more, he'd know that they had just sent their second-prized naval commander in ten years into exile when Cimon got the boot in 461. Even if the Libyan pharaoh knew nothing about Greece other than the existence of the Athenian navy, he still would have known that he was asking for them to back his cause, which hadn't made much forward progress in almost five years. So Anaros, the grandson of the last independent pharaoh, made a devil's bargain and offered the Athenians the one thing that no Mediterranean empire would ever refuse, Egypt itself. Of course, Egypt wouldn't become part of the Delian League or become Athenian citizens, but Diodorus Siculus says that he offered Athens a share of the kingdom and favors many times more than services rendered. What exactly was offered will probably never be known to us. A share in the kingdom could mean all sorts of things. It could mean giving Athens control of the Greek city of Nocratis in the Nile Delta and the surrounding territory, to placing Athenians in high up parts of the Egyptian government. Regardless of the specifics, Egypt, the ancient land of legendary grain and wealth, would be indebted to little old Athens. So Inaris' ambassador went to Athens, and the Athenian government promptly sent word to their fleet, drop what you're doing, and redirect all of your efforts to Egypt. And with that, 200 Athenian warships turned south and made for the Nile Delta. And that brings me to a correction for a past episode. Back in episode 58, Persia's first family, I mentioned one of Xerxes' sons, called Achaemenides by Theseus. On further inspection, it's very clear that Theseus just misidentified one of Artaxerxes' uncles, the current satrap of Egypt, as his brother. So Achaemenides, as I described him, probably did not exist. Theseus just loves to wreak havoc with my family tree project. And we know that Theseus was wrong in this case, because other authors writing before Theseus said that it was Achaemenes, and we have records from Achaemenes before Xerxes' children would have been adults. This is important now because Theseus is the one that describes the battle where satrap Achaemenes dies. The Nile Delta is this huge, fertile blossom in northern Egypt because the river actually splits into several branches with their own mouths emptying into the Mediterranean. The Athenian fleet dispersed across the northern coast of Egypt to occupy different mouths of the river, while only a portion of the fleet had to sail down and rendezvous with the rebel Egyptian army. That also brings me to a semantics issue. When describing this conflict, Inaros' rebellion was not exactly a popular revolt. Unlike his predecessors in 522 or 486, Inaros did not enjoy military support from Egyptians in Persian-held territory. Part of this was surely due to the policy changes made under Xerxes to root out potentially rebellious elements in the satrapies' garrisons and armories. But the Egyptians still provided the ships and crews that the Persian regime used to control the Nile. They also would have provided many of the militia troops that could be called on short notice by Achaemenes. I will be calling these native Egyptians the Persian fleet and the Persian army to avoid confusion with the rebel armies under Inaros or Amerteus. but it's important to know that the Egyptian people were not uniform in this war. When I say the Egyptian army, I mean the rebels. So the Persian fleet... About 50 ships based in Memphis and the Nile Delta sailed to the coast to try and retake any one connection with the Mediterranean from the Athenians. But they encountered an Athenian detachment of about 40 ships, and the now familiar story played out. The Athenians, veterans of 20 years of nonstop naval campaigning, soundly beat the Persian fleet, capturing 20 seaworthy ships from their enemies, and sinking or routing the rest. Meanwhile, Athenian reinforcements joined Naros's army in marching on the city of Papremis, a still unidentified city somewhere in the western delta, presumably south of Sice, just based on the description. Achaemenes himself led the Persian forces, which were at this point just local garrisons and militia. In all likelihood, this wasn't even the first attempt to besiege Papremis. If it was the next logical step in the rebel advance, it might have been a city that held the line for several years. The presence of Athenian ships on the river, and potentially veteran heavy infantry in the front lines, helped turn the tide in Inaros' favor the rebels captured Pepremis and continued moving southeast toward Memphis. They still only controlled cities on the western delta, but Athenian ships could at least secure the waterways and prevent Persian reinforcements from sailing up the Nile River from the Mediterranean to get behind Inaros's army. This enabled Inaros to besiege the Persian capital, which was also the greatest treasury, the greatest fortress, and the link between Lower Egypt and the Delta, and Upper Egypt more inland. Remember, once he got into Upper Egypt, Inaros may already have had potential allies, but reaching them hinged on Memphis. Everything might have fallen apart right there if Inaros hadn't played his cards right. Back in Greece, a border dispute between Megara, an Athenian ally, and Corinth, a Spartan ally, was rapidly evolving into a full-scale war between the Delian and Peloponnesian leagues. But Inaros' promise of a share of the kingdom was still too good to pass up. Part of the Athenian fleet had to be recalled to fight Sparta but smaller contingents of the fleet remained with Anaros and patrolled the Egyptian coast. Ironically, this only happened after the Spartans had refused Artaxerxes' proposal to go to war with Athens with financial support from Persia, but keep that idea at the back of your mind. In early 459 BC, the rebel army and the Athenian fleet attacked the city of Memphis. They took the outlying areas where the city had expanded beyond its own defenses with relative ease. That was good for them because that gave them control of the surrounding farmland as they settled into a four-year siege. The primary fortification of Memphis. Traditionally called the White Castle by historians who weren't fast food lovers in the northeastern U.S., was as close to impregnable as an ancient fortress could be. It straddled the Nile and could withstand a lengthy siege even if enemies controlled territory on both the north and south, so long as Memphis had its own navy. Way back in 525, which was episode 16, Cambyses had to besiege this same fortress, But at that time, the Egyptian navy defected to his side, making the siege of Memphis much quicker. The Persian navy in 459 was not about to defect or surrender to Inaros, and they controlled all of the territory to the south to enjoy uninterrupted access to supplies. The only way for Inaros to take Memphis would have been to breach the walls somehow, or encircle the city. He didn't have the numbers to encircle, so he was left trying to besiege the walls from the north. Meanwhile, Achaemenes' corpse was sent back to Parsa, where an enraged Artaxerxes began making plans for war. Theseus says that the young king wanted to lead the Persian army himself, but his advisors talked him out of it. The Greek physician's story is always overly dramatic, but there's probably something to this anecdote. Artaxerxes was still relatively young, probably in his late 20s, and came from a line of conquerors who led their armies in person. Even if it didn't go well for his father, you have to imagine that this was a king raised on the stories of Cyrus's conquests and Darius' war to reclaim the empire. He was living in a culture that all but demanded military prowess to prove royal legitimacy. Of course, Artaxerxes was not without his own bona fides. He personally killed Artabanus, and there were at least two battles to secure his throne from Persian rebels in 464, but it's not clear if Artaxerxes led from the front in either case. Even if he had he may have wanted to prove himself in a battle that wasn't connected to murdering one of his own brothers. But the fact that he had already beaten back two rebels from his own family and his relative youth were both strong evidence that Artaxerxes' position was still tenuous. Not to mention the small issue that Achaemenes' death must have reminded everyone at court that leading an army was still dangerous. As a young king, Artaxerxes did not have a viable heir. If he had children yet, they were young, barely more than toddlers. If Artaxerxes I fell in battle, it would risk the stability of the empire yet again. Maybe put a pin in that too, now that I think about it. Fortunately for Artaxerxes, he had a strong talent pool in the west to delegate authority to. His father's last great trusted general, Artabazus, was still the satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, and a kind of unofficial head of Athenian affairs for the Persian Empire. Artabazus would be joined by another veteran of the Greek wars, Megabizus, satrap of Assyria, and now a trusted ally of Artaxerxes after the battle with Artabanus's sons, despite Megabizos' own role in murdering Xerxes. The two satraps gave orders to assemble and train an army and navy at bases in Cyprus, Cilicia, and Phoenicia. Then there was the last hand-picked commander that Artaxerxes was relying on. The one who knew the inner workings of the Athenian fleet and maybe even how to beat them. The one who never thought the great king would actually cash in this favor, Themistocles. At this point, Themistocles was an old man, extremely wealthy and comfortable, surrounded by successful adult children whom he had woven into the regional power structure so thoroughly they could not be dislodged. Faced with the prospect of returning to war, and to lead his former enemies against his former countrymen, Themistocles drank some poison and died on his own terms. Themistocles' eldest son succeeded him in Magnesia, and one of his younger sons became the independent ruler of Lempascus. Themistocles' sons continued to govern Magnesia until Achaemenid policy changed in the late 5th century, at which point they quietly returned to Athens but the line of Themistocles' descendants continued to rule in Lampascus for more than 200 years. According to Plutarch, even his descendants in Athens were still entitled to revenues from the Magnesia region well into the 1st century CE. Themistocles would not be part of the war against Inaros, but as Athens became embroiled in the First Peloponnesian War, Artaxerxes was preparing to bring some final resolution to his father's Greek war and this Egyptian rebellion all at once. But that will be next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can head over to historyofpersiapodcast.com where you will find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and... The support page for this podcast where you'll find all of the different ways to financially support the project. That includes one-time payments and Patreon.com where you can sign up for a monthly subscription that will get you access to additional content like ad-free listening or bonus episodes depending on the tier. Bonus episodes that include upcoming projects like The Early History of Achaemenid Armenia, and potentially some more media reviews. But finances are not the only way you can support the podcast. You can do that in two ways right now. Just telling people on whatever platform you prefer. You can find me on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or just at History of Persia on Twitter. The other way is just one final reminder to review on Spotify. With a new review engine out there on a major platform, it's a great opportunity to maybe promote the history of Persia to that specific audience. Review, leave a rating, and until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.